Mark chapter number six this morning, and we're going to begin reading with the first six verses today. Mark chapter six, and beginning in verse number one. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hast this man these teachings? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, The prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. Our Heavenly Father, as we look into your word today, it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher to guide us into the truth, Lord. So teach us what we need to know, Lord, and change us to be more like Christ. And help us to always have faith in you, and to never let our familiarity with the truth of your word or with you yourself cause us to doubt. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the story of the Wizard of Oz, the character Dorothy famously says at the end of the story, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. If you've ever uh, moved away perhaps from where you grew up and then after some years gone back, you probably found that for the most part it was a happy experience. Fond memories, reunions with old friends and visits to familiar sights while you reminisce about the past. For many, returning home after a long absence is, is a joy and a relief. Sometimes we forget that Jesus had a childhood. He grew up. He had a hometown that he spent his early years as a boy and as a young man. And though little is recorded of it, the first 30 years of his life were spent primarily in one small town called Nazareth. You know, Nazareth to us is famous because Jesus came from there, but in Jesus' day, Nazareth was not a very famous town. In fact, uh, there is some indication in Scripture that people disdained those who came from Nazareth because it was just a, a little nothing of a town, if you will. Maybe it was a little like Rutledge. I don't know if they had a red barrel in the middle of town with stop signs on it or not, but it wasn't a whole lot to it. In our story here, Jesus returned to this hometown. He went there because he wanted to do for them what he had done for so many others. But the reception that he received was anything but warm and friendly. They rejected him. And that limited his ministry in that community. Notice what these verses say in verses 5 and 6. He could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. 
Maybe the old adage, familiarity breeds contempt, would help us to understand what was going on here, why they didn't believe in Jesus. This was not a new and exciting figure to them. They knew this man. This was Jesus, the carpenter, Mary's son. His brothers and sisters were there, and they all knew him. And their rejection resulted in their missing out on miracles and blessings because they would not believe. As I think about this story, I think there are some very important truths that we need to be aware of when it comes to our faith in God. I know that a lot of people in here today have been saved for quite a while. You've known Jesus a long time. Many of you are like me. You grew up in a Christian home, were saved at an early age. And you could say, like these people in Nazareth, we've known Jesus for more than 30 years. And if we're not careful, our familiarity with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ can actually result in doubt in our lives. And like these people in Jesus' hometown, we can limit what God will do in our lives. Don't let the familiarity you may have with the Lord erode your faith in God. I want you to notice just some simple statements from this passage today to help us understand why it's important to continually grow in our faith. First of all, notice how it says in verse number 2 that the people in Jesus' hometown were first of all astonished at what Jesus said. So Jesus comes in um, to, uh, uh, to his hometown there, and the Bible says in verse 2 that he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day to begin to teach. Now this was a, a pattern that Jesus followed in many, many instances where he would go in and it was, it was tradition that on a Sabbath day the uh, community would meet together, much like we do for church, and, and that different men would open the word of God and they would, uh, they would read portions and they would share um, teachings about the portions of scripture. And, and so Jesus began to do this and the first thing we're told about the response that he received was one of astonishment. There was something very different about the way that Jesus taught and what he taught. We know that what Jesus taught was a little different than what they were used to hearing. We go back to Matthew chapter 5 and if we read there in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said on multiple occasions, you've heard that it hath been said by them of old time, but I say unto you, you see, rather than relying on the traditions of the rabbis that had gone before them, which is what most of the um, religious teaching in Jesus' day centered around, Jesus taught them the actual truth about what God said and what God meant. It's not a lot different than it is today. There are a lot of churches that this Sunday morning people are gathering together and somebody is standing up in front of them and sharing with the congregation a whole lot of what man says and very little about what God actually says. Can I remind us all this morning that what man says really makes no difference for us in light of eternity because man's word is fallible. God's word, however, is infallible. 
And only God's word has the promise that God says it will never return void. Jesus' teaching was different in what he taught, but also in how he taught it. In another place in scripture, it says that they were astonished because they taught, he taught as one having authority. The way that Jesus taught was, this is what God says, you should do it. He didn't hedge. He didn't make apologies for the word of God. He didn't try to soften it any. He just simply said, here is the truth. Can I tell you, our world today needs that kind of preaching and teaching right there. We do not need to apologize for the truth of God's word. We don't need to downplay it. We don't need to soften it. We need to deliver it. Say, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. You see, the authority for us is not in ourselves, but rather it's in the Word of God. Now, Jesus had the advantage because He is the living Word, and He was preaching the written Word, and so He had the authority that was His as the Creator God of the universe. We don't have that in and of ourselves, but we have just as much authority in the Word of God. This is our authority. And when we open the Bible and we say, this is what God says... That really is the end of the debate. Because at that point, people either have to accept it or not. They have to make a choice. Um, am I going to believe what God says is true? Or am I going to believe something else? And so it boils down to, am I going to believe the truth? Or am I going to believe a lie? Because if you're believing anything other than what God says is truth, you are believing a lie. So Jesus taught these people. The Bible says that they were astonished at their teaching. And having been presented with the truth, they had that choice to make. Will I accept it or will I reject it? Let's look over in Matthew chapter 7 for a moment. Everybody has to make this choice in their life, whether or not they will accept or reject the truth of God's word. And in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used a, a short illustration to help us understand the importance of accepting the truth. He said in verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. How many of you remember learning the song in Sunday school, The Wise Man Built His House Upon a Rock? Raise your hand high. I'm not going to make you sing it, I promise. But if you learned that song, maybe that song's going through your head right now. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Did you know when you were a little child that what Jesus was talking about was the Word of God? So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ song says 
But what Jesus says here is that it's his sayings, his words, that if we if we do what he says, then we're like the wise man with a strong foundation. If we don't do, if we reject what he says, we're the foolish man whose house is built on a shifting soil. Everyone has to make that decision. Am I going to accept or reject the truth of God's word? And Jesus, proclaiming this truth in his hometown, was met with rejection. Notice back in our text of Mark chapter 6. It says in verse number 3, they were offended at him. They were offended at him. The word that's translated offended literally means to stumble, to trip, or to fall. Notice what precedes it in this verse. Notice what these people said. They said, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, not his sisters with us? We, we know this guy. He grew up here. What, what is this all about? Where did he get all this teaching, all this wisdom that he's sharing, these mighty works that we're hearing about? Where did all this come from? We know this guy. What was it that caused them to be offended, to stumble over the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ? I could summarize it in one sentence. They were thinking this. Who does he think he is? Who, who does he think he is? We know him. He's no one special. And so they were offended. But here's the problem. They just thought they knew him. Because he had grown up in their town and they had seen him a lot and they were very familiar with him. They thought they knew all there was to know about Jesus. And so when he shows back up and now he's teaching these supposed lofty truths and we're hearing all these reports that he's done all this special stuff elsewhere, they refused to believe. They knew Jesus the carpenter. They knew Jesus the family boy. They would not accept Jesus the Savior. Romans 9, verses 32 and 33. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. You know, the same Jesus that is Savior to those who believe is a stumbling block to those who will not. And these people got offended about what Jesus was saying and what Jesus was doing because they thought, no, we know Jesus. He's not the Savior. You know, I think how it is stated here is important when it says they were offended at him. When we think of being offended today, um, it's a little bit different of an, of an idea, but there is some overlap. You know, we think somebody's offended. We Basically, you're saying they got their feelings hurt, you know. That offended me. It hurt my feelings. And, and so now you need to apologize to me. That's the idea. Well, they were offended in that sense at Jesus and what he was saying. Who, do you, who does he think he is? What right does he have to come and tell us this? And 
We know him. He's no savior. And I think today about the number of people who get offended by Jesus and about the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it about Jesus' teaching that offends people so much? I can think of a few things. Jesus' teaching is exclusive. And that offends people. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's pretty exclusive. Jesus said, there's only one way to heaven, and that's through me. A lot of people are offended by that. A lot of people want to think, no, I, I, can, I can pick my own way to heaven. You can pick yours, and they can pick theirs, but I get to pick my way. And it offends me for you to tell me there's only one way. I think some people, I know some people, are offended by the humility that Jesus taught. Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to become like a little child. You've got to humble yourself. Luke 18, he told the story about the uh, Pharisee and the publican who went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stood up and praised himself in public prayer. While the publican, off in a corner by himself, simply confessed his need of God's mercy. And Jesus said in Luke 18, 14, I tell you, this man... Speaking of the humble publican, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Many people are offended by that message. When you tell them you're not good enough to get to heaven, it hurts their feelings. And so they stumble over the message of the gospel. I think many people are offended by the idea that salvation then is by faith instead of works. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said there, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, me, ye that work iniquity. That's pretty offensive to the person who's relying on their good works to get them to heaven. These people, Jesus said, will stand before God one day and say, but, but, but I, I preached in your name. I cast out devils in your name. Isn't it interesting that Jesus never questioned those two statements? He never questioned whether or not they preached in his name, that is prophesied, or that they cast out devils in Jesus' name. He never questioned that. But notice what he did say. He said, depart from me, I never knew you. Yes, you may have done works that were good, but they weren't good enough because you didn't have a relationship with me through faith. It is through faith, not works. That offends people. You take someone who's been raised in a religion that has taught them their whole life, if you do this, 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 and this, then you'll get to heaven. And you say to them, no, none of that will get to heaven. You can try your hardest, you can do your best, but the Bible says it is by grace through faith apart from works, and it offends them. And many people refuse to believe, and they stumble and fall over the gospel message. 
And then I think the familiarity that some people have with Jesus. It's not a good familiarity. They're not familiar with the true Jesus. They think they know Jesus. Because they grew up hearing his name and, and they know some Bible stories and they, they, they've been to church on Christmas and Easter and, and so they think they know Jesus but they are confronted with the whole truth about who Jesus is and what is necessary to be saved and they're offended. They say, well, that's not the Jesus I know. But the Jesus I know is like this and, and said this and taught us to do this. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible, you see. And so to this day, people think they know Jesus, but they won't believe on him for salvation. Some people only recognize him as a historical figure. Yes, he, he lived and died, and a lot of people followed him. He taught some good stuff, but that's it. And they think they know Jesus, but they won't believe on him for salvation. They were offended at Jesus. And so, the end result of that is that, number three, they were disappointed. Jesus' response in verse number four is a classic answer. A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. That's where he's talking about that familiarity. He's, like, you, he's saying, you will not accept me because you're too familiar with me. You think you know me, and so you don't want to know any more. And so what happened? Verse 5, he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Jesus' ministry in that community was severely limited. They lost out on the opportunity to see Christ do many miracles because they wouldn't believe. You know, in the Bible, there are only two things that can limit God. The first thing that can limit God is his will. All right? God is only limited by what he will and won't do. If God wants to do it, he can do it. Okay? But connected with that is this second idea that biblically the only thing that will limit God's working in our life is our doubt. In Psalm 78, verses 40 and 41, talking about the children of Israel, it says, How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. How did the Israelites limit what God would do? By constantly doubting him. You read through the book of Numbers, and it's just one complaint after another. Every time you turn around, the Israelites are like, we want water, we want food, we don't like this food, we want different food, and why'd you bring us out here anyway? We should go back to Egypt. Let's do that. Let's elect a new leader. We'll go back to Egypt. Wine, wine, wine. And they're murmuring and they're complaining and their doubt limited what God would do. They didn't limit God's actual ability. Please understand that. Don't, don't mistake what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that our faith or our doubt somehow increases or decreases God's actual ability. No, God is omnipotent regardless of us. He is all-powerful. But what our faith and our doubt does is determines what God will do 
in our lives many times. And what happened in this story that we're reading in Mark chapter 6 is the Lord Jesus Christ limited what he would do because of their unbelief. And so the result was that they missed out. Now God is God. He reserves the right to do this. He can say, I will do this in response to your faith, but if you don't believe, I won't. He's still sovereign in that matter, but he gives you and I the choice to believe. For instance, in salvation, God is sovereign. He could have said, I will just save everybody indiscriminately, regardless of if they're repentant of their sins or whatever. It doesn't matter. I'll just save everybody. But that's not how God has chosen to do it. He and his sovereignty and his wisdom knew there was a better plan. And so he said, I will save only those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3 and verse number 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so God says, I can, but I will only save I can save everybody, but I will only save those who place faith in Christ. But even after salvation, faith is still important. If you're a believer today, understand this, that God has not obligated himself to answer your prayers that are not prayed in faith. He's not obligated himself to do that. Now, He is a God of grace and mercy. I'm so thankful for the times that He does answer our prayers, even when there is doubt. But we need to understand that faith is an essential part of our prayer life. Turn to the book of James, chapter number 1. James chapter 1, verse 5 talks about if we need faith, ask God for it. And it will be given us. And look at verse 6. It says, but let him, that is the one requesting wisdom, let him ask in, what's that next word? Faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven of the wind and tossed. For let not that man, that is the man who has, does not have faith, who is doubting, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. We need to walk by faith just as we were saved by faith. Colossians chapter 2. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. See, these folks were disappointed. They missed out because they wouldn't believe. Now notice one more statement from our text in Mark chapter 6 and verse number 6. And it says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. The word marvel here is to wonder at, to express a sense of astonishment. It's, it's kind of hard to explain when it says that Jesus marveled. I mean, isn't he 
omniscient? Doesn't he know everything? So why would he be astonished at anything? And I believe it was for our sake that the Holy Spirit led Mark to record these words like this so that we would understand that even God the Son expressed a sense of astonishment at what was going on in this particular situation. This whole thing was perplexing. It was unreasonable. It was illogical. It didn't make sense. They wouldn't believe on Jesus because they knew too much about him? That doesn't make sense when you think of it that way. Say, well, we're too familiar with you. We're not going to believe. But then we need to, we need to stop for a second and, and analyze this. There's something about all, all of us. There's something about human nature that we need, to, we need to be honest about. Our tendency is to lose interest in familiar things. We like new stuff. And especially in our world today, in the American economy, which is all geared around consumerism. And consumerism is based on the idea the stuff that you have right now isn't good enough, so you need new stuff. So we're going to produce all of these ads to convince you that the new stuff is better than the old stuff. So that you'll get rid of the old stuff and get the new stuff, or is more likely put the old stuff in the garage, in the attic, and in the storage unit, and then go get new stuff. But it is true that human nature is to be more interested in the new things than in the old things. In Acts chapter 17, Paul had a run-in with some folks on Mars Hill, and it says of those people that they spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And our culture today is, is, is driven by this insatiable desire for something new. That's why we have the 24-hour news cycle, right? Why is it called news it's something you haven't heard before. It's the latest scandal. It's the latest crime. It's the latest this or that. And that's why social media has all of these complicated computer programs, these algorithms that will flash before our eyes something new, trying to get you to click on this, to watch this, to respond to that so they can sell advertisements and make, make more money. It's all about something new because new things are more interesting, right? All the old stuff, I know all about that. Give me something new. But there's a problem. Much like many things regarding our human nature, the Bible reveals that it is fatally flawed. And in this desire for always seeing and hearing and finding something new, we find there is a fatal flaw in that philosophy. Because Ecclesiastes 1, verses 9 and 10 says this, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done, is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It hath been already of old time, which was before us. You know, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. You've probably heard that expression. It comes right out of Scripture. You say, yeah, but the, 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 the new iPhone never existed before. Well, you know what? The whole idea of communicating to another person has been around since creation. 
of course, we've amplified that and we've, we've invented a lot of different things and we've discovered ways that we can communicate different. But when you actually take everything and you boil it down to its simple concepts, it's concept, they are concepts that have been around forever. And so we think, oh, something new, this is going to be more exciting, it's going to make me more happy, it's going to make me more satisfied and fulfilled in life, only to find out it never does. And unfortunately, this desire for something new and this disregard for things familiar can be spiritually detrimental. Our desire for new can be spiritually deadly if it blinds us to the old truth that has been there all along. That's what happened in Jesus' hometown. He shows up. Oh, that's just old Jesus. We know him, we know his family. But here he is, teaching the truth about salvation and, and doing wonderful works or offering to do wonderful works. And they say, we don't want any part of that. We know him. Now, the truth about Jesus hadn't changed from eternity past. He is the savior of the world. But they would refuse to receive that old truth because it wasn't packaged in something new. You understand what's going on here? And so we bring it into our lives. And the truth is, sometimes we mistakenly think we know all there is to know about Jesus. I've read the Bible cover to cover multiple times. I've been saved since I was a little child. I've been in church my entire life. I've heard countless thousands of sermons. And for me, preached a few of them too. I know all there is to know about Jesus. I don't need to learn anymore. Or we think we know all about the Bible. And so we close our minds to the preaching and teaching of God's Word. We don't show up in Sunday school or in a service, open up the Word of God, sincerely thinking, I'm going to learn something today. We think, oh, just another rerun. But that's okay. We like reruns, right? You know, reruns are good too. Now, I don't pretend that every time you come and listen to a Sunday school lesson or listen to a sermon preached that you're going to get some life-altering revelation that you've never heard before. But I do know what happens many times in my life is that I hear a truth that I've heard many times before and all of a sudden a light bulb goes off and I realize a little bit different how that might apply in this particular situation. Or I understand a, a, to a little bit better degree exactly the implications of that in my life. And I, I can grow if I'm willing to learn. But we become so familiar with the Bible that we think, eh, I know all there is to know. We think we know all about God. And so we stop seeking to know Him better and better. And so... The result is that we are disappointed. Life gets hollow. We're dissatisfied. And we think to ourselves, I must need something new. When the fact is, we don't need something new. We need something very, very old. Eternal, in fact. We need God. But yet, we don't believe we think, no, that can't be it. I, I've got to do this or that. Or, no, that's not it. 
and we doubt. And God the Son marvels at our unbelief. In the early to mid-1900s, there was a singer-songwriter by the name of George Beverly Shea. Many of you know that name. Traveled for many years with Billy Graham and his evangelistic association. They had been over in Scotland in the 1950s and through the course of their crusades had preached the gospel to over two and a half million people. Of that, they had recorded at least 50,000 professions of faith in Christ. And on the way back to America, they were on a ship. And George Beverly Shea was talking to a businessman who was not a believer, but was interested in what they were doing. And George Beverly Shea was relaying to him the numbers of people that they preached to and the services they had and the professions of faith and all of this. And, and at the end, George Beverly Shea was just so overcome by, by it all. He just, all he could say was, oh, the wonder of it all. And that phrase stuck with that businessman. And like I said, not even a believer, but he wrote on an envelope a little while later and passed it to George Beverly Shea. He wrote, the wonder of it all. That sounds like a song title. George Beverly Shea took that and he sat down and he penned the words. There's the wonder of sunset at evening. The wonder as sunrise I see. But the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. There's the wonder of springtime and harvest, the sky, the stars, and the sun. But the wonders of wonders that thrills my soul and listen to this phrase, is a wonder that's just begun. You see, you may know a lot about Jesus. You may know a lot about the Bible, but can I tell you, we have only scratched the surface. Oh, the wonder of it all. Heavenly Father, Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word and through the Lord Jesus Christ as he lived here on earth. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And by reading what he did and what he said and, and reading what you've recorded for us in scripture, we can learn more and more about you. Lord, I pray especially for those today who have been saved for some length of time, that we would not allow our familiarity with you to erode our faith. May we never get to the point where we think, oh, I know all I need to know. May we always strive to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we not limit what you will do in our lives through our doubt and through our, our lack of faith in you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Have you lost the wonder of it all? When was the last time that you just... realized something, learned something about God 
or how that truth might apply in a new way in your life. You know, if there has been a long time in your life since, since you have learned more about God, you've plateaued spiritually. And if you're not careful, that will eventually lead to backsliding. There's a reason God told us to be growing. But yet we get so familiar, we forget that sometimes. This morning, I want to invite you to go to God. To tell Him thank you for what He has taught you about Himself. And to ask Him to teach you more. Are you willing to do that? Don't lose the wonder of it all.